Chapter 28 A Mysterious Stranger If I had been in Matthias' place, I should perhaps have had as much imagination as he. But I felt in my position that it was wrong for me to have such thoughts. It had been proved beyond a doubt that Mr. Driscoll was my father. I could not look at the matter from the same point of view as Matthias. He might doubt, but I must not. When he tried to make me believe as he did, I told him to be silent. But he was pig-headed, and I was not always able to get the better of his obstinacy. Why are you dark and all the rest of the family fair? He would ask repeatedly. How was it that poor people could dress their baby in fine laces and embroidery? Was another often repeated question and I could only reply by putting a question myself. Why did they search for me if I was not their child? Why had they given money to Barberin and to Grath and Gali? Mattia could find no answer to my question, and yet he would not be convinced. I think we should both go back to France, he urged. That's impossible, because it's your duty to keep with your family, huh? But is it your family? These discussions only had one result. They made me more unhappy than I had ever been. How terrible it is to doubt. Yet in spite of my wish not to doubt, I doubted. Who would have thought, when I was crying so sadly because I thought I had no family, that I should be in such despair now that I had one? How could I know the truth? In the meantime, I had to sing and dance and laugh and make grimaces when my heart was full. One Sunday, my father told me to stay in the house because he wanted me. He sent Matya off alone. All the others had gone out. My grandfather alone was upstairs. I had been with my father for about an hour when there was a knock at the door. A gentleman who was unlike any of the men who usually called on my father, came in. He was about 50 years old and dressed in the height of fashion. He had white pointed teeth like a dog, and when he smiled, he drew his lips back over them as though he was going to bite. He spoke to my father in English, turning continually to look at me. Then he began to talk French. He spoke this language with scarcely an accent. This is the young boy that you spoke to me about, he said. He appears very well. Answer the gentleman, said my father to me. Yes, I am quite well, I replied, surprised. You have never been ill? I had pneumonia once. Ah, when was that? Three years ago. I slept out in the cold all night. My master, who was with me, was frozen to death, and I had pneumonia. Haven't you felt any effects of this illness since? No. No fatigue, no perspiration at night? No. When I'm tired, it's because I have walked a lot, but I don't get ill. He came over to me and felt my arms, then put his head on my heart, then at my back and on my chest, telling me to take deep breaths. 
He also told me to cough. That done, he looked at me for a long time. It was then that I thought he wanted to bite me. His teeth gleamed in such a terrible smile. A few moments later, he left the house with my father. What did it mean? Did he want to take me in his employ? I should have to leave Matya and Kapi? No, I wouldn't be a servant to anybody, much less this man whom I disliked already. My father returned and told me I could go out if I wished. I went into the caravan. What was my surprise to find Matya there? He put his finger to his lips. Go and open the stable, though, he whispered. I'll go out softly behind you. They mustn't know that I was here. I was mystified, but I did as he asked. Do you know who that man was who was with your father? He asked excitedly when we were in the street. It was Mr. James Milligan, your friend's uncle. I stood staring at him in the middle of the pavement. He took me by the arm and dragged me on. I was not going out all alone, he continued. So I went in there to sleep, but I didn't sleep. Your father and the gentleman came into the stable, and I heard all they said. At first I didn't try to listen, but afterward I did. Solid as a rock, said the gentleman. Nine out of ten would have died, but he pulled through with pneumonia. How is your nephew? asked your father. Better. Three months ago the doctors again gave him up, but his mother saved him once more. Oh, she is a marvelous mother, is Mrs. Milligan. You can imagine, when I heard this name, if I did not glue my ears to the window. Then, if your nephew is better, continued your father, all you've done is useless. For the moment, perhaps, replied the other. But I don't say that Arthur is going to live. It would be a miracle if he did. And I do not believe in miracles. The day he dies, the only heir to the estate will be myself. Don't worry, I'll see to that, said Driscoll. Yes, I count on you, replied Mr. Milligan. My first thought was to question my father. But it was not wise to let them know that they had been overheard. As Mr. Milligan had business with my father, he would probably come to the house again, and the next time Matya, whom he did not know, could follow him. A few days later, Matya met a friend of his, Bob, the Englishman whom he had known at the Gasseau Circus. I could see by the way he greeted Matya that he was very fond of him. He at once took a liking to Capi and myself. From that day, we had a strong friend who, by his experience and advice, was of great help to us in time of trouble. Chapter 29 In Prison Spring came slowly, but at last the day arrived for the family to leave London. The caravans had been repainted and were loaded with merchandise. There were fabrics, hats, shawls, handkerchiefs, sweaters, underwear, earrings, razors, soap, powders, cream, 
everything that one could imagine. The caravans were full. The horses bought where and how, I did not know, but we saw them come, and everything was then ready for the departure. We did not know if we were to stay with the old grandfather or go with the family, but my father, finding that we made good money playing, told us the night before that we should go on the road with him and play our music. Let us go back to France, urged Matya. Here is a good chance now. Why not travel through England? Because I tell you something is going to happen if we stay here. And besides, we might find Mrs. Milligan and Arthur in France. If he has been ill, she will be sure to take him on their barge now the summer is coming. I told him that I must stay. The same day we started. I saw in the afternoon how they sold the things that cost so little. We arrived at a large village, and the caravans were drawn up on the public square. One of the sides was lowered, and the goods displayed temptingly for the purchasers to inspect. Look at the price! Look at the price! cried my father. You couldn't find anything like this elsewhere for the price. I don't sell them. I'm giving them away. Look at this! He must have stolen them, I heard the people say, when they saw the prices. If they had glanced at my shamed looks, they would have known that they were right in their suppositions. If they didn't notice me, Matya did. How much longer can you bear this? he asked. I was silent. Let us go back to France, he urged again. I feel that something is going to happen, and going to happen soon. Don't you think sooner or later the police will get on to Driscoll seeing how cheap he is selling the things? Then what will happen? Oh, Matya, if you will keep your eyes shut, I must keep my open. We shall both be arrested, and we haven't done anything. But how can we prove that? Aren't we eating the food that is paid for by the money that he gets for these things? I had never thought of that. It struck me now like a blow in the face. But we earn our food, I stammered, trying to defend ourselves. That is true, but we are living with thieves, replied Matya, speaking more frankly than he had ever done before. And then, if we are sent to prison, we can't look for your family. And I am anxious to see Mrs. Milligan, to warn her against that James Milligan. You don't know what he might not do to Arthur. Let us go while we can. Let me have a few more days to think it over, Matty, I said. Hurry up, then. I smell danger. Circumstances did for me what I was afraid to do. Several weeks had passed since we left London. My father had set up his caravans in a town where the races were about to be held. As Matya and I had nothing to do with selling the goods, we went to see the race course, which was at some distance from the town. Outside the English race courses, there is usually a fair going on. Mountbanks of all descriptions, musicians, and stall holders gather there two or three days in advance. We were passing by a campfire over which a kettle was hanging when we recognized our friend Bob, 
who had been with Matya in the circus. He was delighted to see us again. He had come to the races with two friends and was going to give an exhibition of strength. He had engaged some musicians, but they had failed him at the last moment, and he was afraid that the performance the next day would be a failure. He had to have musicians to attract the crowd. Would we help him out? The profits would be divided between the five of us that made up the company. There would even be something for Capi, for he would like to have Capi perform his tricks in the intervals. We agreed and promised to be there the next day at the time he mentioned. When I told of this arrangement to my father, he said that he wanted Capi and that we could not have him. I wondered if they were going to make my dog do some dirty trick. From my look, my father guessed my thoughts. Oh, it's all right, he said. Capi's a good watchdog. He must stand by the caravans. In a crowd like we shall have, we might easily be robbed. You two go alone and play with your friend Bob, and if you're not finished until late, which will be quite likely, you can join us at the Old Oak Tavern. We shall go on our way again tomorrow. We had spent the night before at the Old Oak Tavern, which was a mile out on a lonely road. The place was kept by a couple whose appearance did not inspire one with confidence. It was quite easy to find this place. The only annoying thing was that it was a long walk for us after retiring day. But when my father said a thing I had to obey, I promised to be at the tavern. The next day, after tying Capi to the caravan, where he was to be on guard, I hurried off to the rice course with Matya. We began to play as soon as we arrived and kept it until night. My fingers ached as though they had been pricked with a thousand pins and poor Matya had blown his cornet so long that he could scarcely breathe. It was past midnight. Just as they were doing their last turn, a big bar of iron which they were using in their fits fell on Matya's foot. I thought that his foot was broken. Fortunately, it was only severely bruised. No bones were broken, but still he could not walk. It was decided that he should stay there that night with Bob and that I should go on alone to the Old Oak Tavern, for I had to know where the Driscoll family was going the next day. All was dark when I reached the tavern. I looked round for the caravans. They were nowhere to be seen. All I could see, beside one or two miserable wagons, was a big cage, from which, as I drew near, came the cry of a wild beast. The gaudy-colored caravans belonging to the Driscoll family were gone. I knocked at the tavern door. The landlord opened it and turned the light from his lantern full on my face. He recognized me, but instead of letting me go in, he told me to hurry after my parents, who had gone to Lewis, and said that I'd better not lose any time joining them. Then he shut the door in my face. Since I had been in England, I had learned to speak English fairly well, 
I understood clearly what he said, but I had not the slightest idea where Lewis was situated, and besides, I could not go, even if I found out the direction and leave Matya behind. I began my weary tramp back to the race course, and how late I was sleeping beside Matya in Bob's wagon. The next morning, Bob told me how to get to Lewis, and I was ready to start. I was watching him boil the water for breakfast when I looked up from the fire and saw Capi being led towards us by a policeman. What did it mean? The moment Capi recognized me, he gave a tug at his leash and, escaping from the officer, bounded towards me and jumped into my arms. Is that your dog? asked the policeman. Yes. Then come with me. You are under arrest. He seized me by the collar. What do you mean by arresting him? cried Bob, jumping up from the fire. Are you his brother? No, his friend. Well, a man and a boy robbed St. George's Church last night. They got up a ladder and went through the window. This dog was there to give the alarm. They were surprised in the act, and in their hurry to get out by the window, the dog was left in the church. I knew that with the dog I'd be sure to find the thieves. Here's one. Now where is his father? I could not utter a word. Matya, who had heard the talk, came out of the caravan and limped over to me. Bob was telling the policeman that I could not be guilty because I had stayed with him until one o'clock. Then I went to the old oak tavern and spoke to the landlord there and came back here at once. The policeman shrugged his shoulders. This boy can explain it to the magistrate, he said. Handcuffed to the policeman, I had to pass under the gaze of a crowd of people. But they didn't jeer me like the peasants in France had done at my first arrest. These people, almost all of them, were antagonistic to the police. They were all tramps of some kind. There were no onions strewn over this prison where I was now locked up. This was a real jail with iron bars at the windows, the sight of which put all thought of escape from my mind. In the cell there was only a bench and a hammock. I dropped onto the bench and remained for a long time with my head buried in my hands. Matya and Bob, even with the help of other friends, could never get me out of here. I got up and went over to the window. The bars were strong and close together. The walls were three feet thick. The ground beneath was paved with large stones. The door was covered with a plate of sheet iron. No, I could not escape. I began to wonder if it would be possible for me to prove my innocence despite Capi's presence in the church. Matty and Bob could help me by proving an alibi. If they could prove this, I was saved in spite of the mute testimony that my poor dog had carried against me. I asked the jailer, when he brought in some food, if it would be long before I should appear before the magistrate. I did not know then that in England you are taken into court the day after arrest. The jailer, who seemed a kindly sort of man, told me that it would certainly be the next day.
I had heard tales of prisoners finding messages from their friends in the food that was brought in to them. I could not touch my food, but I at once began to crumble my bread. I found nothing inside. There were some potatoes also. I mashed them to a pulp, but I found not the tiniest note. I did not sleep that night. The next morning the jailer came into my cell, carrying a jug of water and a basin. He told me to wash myself if I wished to, for I was to appear before the judge, and the good appearance never went against one. When the jailer returned, he told me to follow him. We went down several passages, then came to a small door which he opened. Pass in, he said. I entered the door and heard a confused murmur of voices. Although my temples were throbbing and they could scarcely stand, I was able to take in my surroundings. The room was of fair size, with large windows and high ceiling. The judge was seated on a raised platform. Beneath him in front sat three other court officials. Near where I stood was a gentleman wearing a robe and wig. I was surprised to find that this was my lawyer. How was it? I had an attorney. Where did he come from? Amongst the witnesses, I saw Bob and his two friends, the landlord of the Old Oak Tavern, and some men whom I did not know. Then on another stand opposite, among several other persons, I saw the policeman who had arrested me. The public prosecutor in a few words stated the crime. A robbery had been committed in St. George's Church. The thieves, a man and a child, had climbed up a ladder and broken a window to get in. They had with them a dog to give the alarm. At a quarter after one, a late pedestrian had seen a light in the church and had at once aroused the sexton. Several men ran to the church, the dog barked and the thieves escaped through the window, leaving the dog behind them. The dog's intelligence was remarkable. The next morning the animal had led the policeman to the racecourse, where he had recognized his master, who was none other than the accused now standing in the prisoner's dock. As to the second thief, they were on his trail, and they hoped to arrest him shortly. There was little to be said for me. My friends tried to prove an alibi, but the prosecutor said that I had ample time to meet my accomplice at the church and then run to the old oak tavern. I was asked then how I could account for my dog being in the church quarter after one. I replied that I could not say, for the dog had not been with me all day. But I declared that I was innocent. My attorney tried to prove that my dog had wandered into the church during the day and had been locked in when the sexton closed the door. He did his best for me. Then the judge said that I should be taken to the country jail to wait for the grand jury to decide if I should or should not be held for their seizures. Their seizures. I fell back on my bench. Or oh, why had I not listened to Matya?